Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History and my friend Gertie Gabba of Historically Based Podcasts, Dominic Sandbrook is with me and Dominic, today we're we're recording this (laughs) on the the 16th of February Um, and in 2015, Leslie Gore very sadly died. Are you... Are you a fan of Leslie Gore? You, do you know her, her greatest uh, hit? Uh, remind me, Tom, I'm struggling. It's my party. And oh. I'll cry if I want to. Cry yes. if I want to. Cry if I want to. <laughs> you would cry too if it happened to you. And you could say that that, yeah. at the moment, would be the, the theme song for the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who yes. has endured a, a torrid few weeks um, over what the British press have called Partygate. And yeah. perhaps for the benefit of our overseas listeners, you could explain exactly why these parties have been so disastrous. Well, um, maybe, Tom, I should wait for Sue Gray's report. But since that's not forthcoming, um, I should say uh, in the first sort of months or year or so of the lockdown, it is alleged that in Downing Street, um, Boris Johnson and his aides held a, a, an enormous quantity of, of parties, gatherings, quizzes, drinks and so on which they say were all work-related events, but it appeared to be, they look very like parties, which were breaking the government's own COVID rules. Um, so the image is of a government that was making rules for everybody else, but uh, in which the prime minister and his aides were kind of ambushing each other with cakes and um, songs, cheap Prosecco, yes, all and that just behaving in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a shameful manner. That's the sort of claim. They claim this was all work-related and they will be completely exonerated. We will... Well, the tension mounts, Tom. But Dominic, the, I mean, the effect of it on the prime minister standing and on the performance of the government in the polls has been, I mean, really very drastic. Yeah, and as, very drastic. As, as a historian of, uh, you know, of, of British politics, have you ever seen a, a meltdown quite like it? I mean, it seems to me yeah, there's unprecedented. Loads of meltdowns. No, over there's parties. Sort of, not over parties. Not over parties. But um, I think what it is, is uh, uh, to my mind, a disastrous party is a bit like a scandal. So a political scandal. So it becomes disastrous 
I mean, there's, we, we're all we're no strangers to disastrous parties. I imagine anybody listening to this, but a party becomes politically disastrous when it seems to throw into relief flaws or yeah. sort of anxieties that were already there. Right. Okay. So, so on the back of um, uh, of Partygate, we had a brilliant suggestion by Matt Butcher, for which we're very, very grateful, that we should do the top ten most disastrous parties in history which I thought was, you know, we both thought was an absolutely brilliant yeah. idea. So that's what we've done. We put out, so I put out a, a tweet asking for, for you, uh, the listeners, to, to nominate. We put it out on the Discord. Um, and we've had hundreds and hundreds of nominations. And, we have, um, and we've whittled them down, haven't we? We have whittled them down. So all, all the ones that we've got ha- have been suggested by you, the listeners. Um, Boris, Boris has not made the cut. Um, no. I was sorry that some of his colleagues who are listeners to this podcast <laughs> didn't write in with nominations of their own to maybe nominate his party. Yes. <laughs> that secret party we had in the broom cupboard. On, exactly. But nobody nobody found out about. Several parties were, were nominated that we've already had uh, on, on The Rest is History. So Tom Gorman nominated um, Prince Yusupov's party at the Moika Palace. Yeah, Rasputin. Disastrous. That was not a good party for him. Um, Sam the Belgian has nominated Joyce and Proust meeting up, which we we mentioned in the 1922 episode. Um, Gavin Barrett, Belshazzar's Feast, which in a way is, you know, that's the archetype of a terrible party, the writing on the wall and all that kind of stuff. You don't want that to happen at your own party, do you? No, no. But I mean, I wouldn't invite Daniel to my party anyway. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, but, it's, but the whole thing about that is that, uh, you know, the, the Medes and the Persians come gate crashing in. That's true. I yeah. mean, that's, you know, we're all familiar with, it, with the issue of gate crashes. Um, and then we have had several nominations that have been bubbling under. So Stephen Clark, very much a friend of the show. Josef Sieza, am I pronouncing that right? MEP. Uh, he's a, he, looks, he looks Hungarian to me, Tom. I don't he know is how Hungarian. He's a, he's a, um, a committed opponent of gay rights. Right. Uh, and inevitably, he was arrested during lockdown in Brussels, fleeing a gay sex orgy, climbing down a drain pipe. <laughs> Oh, that's so, so often the way. So that's quite fun. Um, Amy Matrafadi, absolute oh, yes. fixture on the Discord. The 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner, where Obama and Seth Meyers mocked the idea of Trump running for president while he was sitting in the audience. Well, supposedly that was one of the motivating factors. Yes. You know, Trump's determination to kind of get his own back. Absolutely. And another American one from Josh909, Andrew Jackson's inauguration. 20,000 people trashed the White House and ate a lot of cheese, and apparently the White House smelt of cheese for months. So anyway, they didn't make the cut. Uh, nor, nor Dominic did yeah. a joke that about 400 people made. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I thought this was quite funny. <laughs> of which Jack Clark is representative. Change UK. Yes. So you want, again, for our, for our overseas listeners, just explain that joke. I mean, this is like kind of explaining a Shakespeare comedy a, or something. A very ill-fated um, centrist political party formed an opposition, I think largely to Brexit, but also to Jeremy Corbyn. Didn't do very well. But there's also that party of Gina Miller's, the Truth and Fairness oh, yes. Party, or True and... I can't remember what it's called, but only six people turned up to the launch of it. But not not that kind of party, of course. No, so, no. They're not as disastrous as our 10th choice. Well, should <laughs> we, Dominic, should we just say, so we've, you and me yesterday, we yeah. went through and we, we kind of winnowed them down. Um, and we're going to do it like the kind of uh, top of the pops. We're going to go from 10 up to one. So we find exactly. out what we've voted the most disastrous party of all time. Yeah. So I hope you will find the, the tension kind of mounting <laughs> as we go through. So, but number 10, what comes in at number 10? So it's a hunting party in the Black Forest, Tom. They are at Donauschwingen Castle in Donauschwingen, Baden-Württemberg. Um, their date is the 14th of November, 1908. Uh, very much a friend of the show, the Kaiser, Wilhelm II, 
um, notorious for his ill ill chosen shoes. Yes, Tom Holland style shoes. And this is a, this is very much a party that revolves around ill chosen dress, isn't it? It, it well, <laughs> <laughs> so well, we don't know what the Kaiser was wearing, but we do know what his old childhood friend. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Count Dietrich von Hülsen Heisler was wearing. Um, we do. <laughs> I've got I've got a printout of him. And he's a very I, I think fair to say a Prussian looking gentleman. He's very German. I mean he's got the whole moustache, yeah. he's got he's very he's very stolid. He's a man who's been eating sausage for <laughs> yes. for decades. He's uh, his his um his jacket is, is festooned with medals and iron crosses, um, shaven-headed, square-headed. Uh, and this reminds me that this was nominated by a friend of the show, Dan Jackson, who does love a Teutonic gentleman in, in military uniform, <laughs> I've noticed from his Twitter feed. Um, so, so this guy was a Prussian. He was the son of a general. He became a general. He was a childhood friend of the Kaiser. Um, and in 1889, he became the, the aide-de-camp of the Kaiser. Or should that be the aide-de-camp? Yes, very good. Because so he's, I think he, I believe he's the chief of the uh, German Imperial Military Cabinet at this point, Tom. Mm, so very um, important figure. And they're at uh, Prince Max von Furstenberg's castle, as we've said, in Baden-Württemberg. And they've been hunting, haven't they? So they've been hunting. hunting they've had been great, great, great laughs together hunting. The Kaiser's a great huntsman. They come back and they have formal evening uh, do a kind of dinner and so on. And <laughs> Count von Hülsenhäsler <laughs> clearly must leave the room at some point and then re. <laughs> He, he, I think it's fair to say he misreads the mood. Well, you don't know. I mean, uh, maybe this is... <laughs> he comes in and he's dressed. <laughs> he's dressed in a pink tutu and ballet tights and a kind of pink leotard. He does a kind of um, dance of the sugar plum fairy with pirouettes and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then he kills over of a heart attack. Supposedly he does a lot of capers and jumps. <laughs> He's an implausible ballerina. It's fair to say. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, so he has a heart attack, and that's and that. But that's yeah, very he does this, for him. He does this routine, and then he dies. And um, they they call a doctor. Did you see this? They call a doctor. By the time the doctor's got there, they've failed to resuscitate him, and they pronounce him dead. He's so he's he's succumbed to rigor mortis. They had to struggle to get him out of his because <laughs> he's obviously a really hefty. Yes. He's a really hefty bloke. So they they so don't bury him in it. No, they don't. But the, the, the weird thing about this, Tom, and I said that parties, when I was not laughing, I said that parties were disastrous when they accentuated existing anxiety. The Kaiser and the German high command, they have been racked for the last two years by accusations of homosexuality. Yes, the, the Eulenburg scandal. Yes, exactly. And an, an imperialist journalist, Maximilian Harden, he's accused um, the Prince Philip of Eulenburg of being gay of being part of a sort of gay ring um some officers have committed suicide after being blackmailed there have been a series of libel cases and actually the kaiser has asked um <laughs> count von hulsenhaisler to kind of clean up the prussian high command so the weird thing is why is, is he, he doing it <laughs> has he cracked under the <laughs> strain and put on the tutu and or, or or is this a sort of elaborate in joke is he maybe I don't know. Having a laugh in private about this sort of situation. They find themselves. Anyway, he's been, been in his tutu. He's dropped dead. Um, it's very embarrassing. Uh, okay, so that's not a good party. So that's well, it. it can't, I think we can say it cast a pall over the evening. Uh, and, over, <laughs> um, uh, and over the Kaiser's reputation and the reputation of the German high command. Yeah, I think, for, I think that's for quite right. a way. Yeah. And it has been argued that uh, 
you know, the, the Kaiser was left with a determination to prove his manliness that yeah. resulted in the First World War. So- That's absolutely right. There's a lot of literature on pre-First World War origins about manliness and gender and this sort of stuff and about the, the these sort of anxieties. Anyway, we're, we don't we need to go down this rabbit hole too deeply, but um, this is our number 10. Okay. And at number nine, uh, nominated by Brian Spabler, we have yeah. the Fire Festival, F-Y-R-E. Uh, and Dominic, you, you must love this one. Playing well, all I mean, your darkest expectations <laughs> of millennials. It is. It's terrible behaviour, isn't it? So the Fire Festival, for those people who don't know, it's been the subject of two rival documentaries, one on Netflix, one by Hulu. Um, it was founded by a Wikipedia claims the, a con artist, I think, I don't know whether that's too harsh, called Billy McFarland, and a rapper called Ja Rule. I'm not sure how you say it. So basically, they want to promote an app called the Fire app, which is an app for, for booking bands. And they schedule this 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 sort of, this sort of two weekend festival in April and May 2017 on an island called Great Exuma in the Bahamas. But originally they'd been planning to to have it on another island, hadn't they? That they'd kind of visited while they were on a private jet, and they'd landed on this island, and it had previously been owned by one of the leading henchmen of um, Pablo Escobar. That's right. And the show Narcos was then very popular in the in the US. So they were very excited by that. And they were told, do not publicise this using Pablo Escobar's name, that one of his henchmen. But I've seen their ad. I looked up this ad preparing for this podcast. It's still there. It, it, it's a real sort of Instagrammers kind of ad. And in the on the ad, it says explicitly on an island owned by Pablo Escobar, which is just untrue. Pablo Escobar yes. did not own this island. But that's why they then have that. That's the problem because the, the people who own it are, are furious and kick them off. So they then have to go and find some other place and they go to Great Exuma and, you know, that's fine. They book in. But the problem is <laughs> that the Exuma regatta is going on that's at the right. same so all time. The hotels so everyone has booked up all the hotels. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And they've kind of promised incredible luxury. They've got loads of um, kind of Instagram stars. Are you familiar with all these people, Tom? Kendall Jenner? You're familiar Kendall with the work of Kendall yes, Jenner? Um, uh, daughter of um, the Jenners. Related to Greg Jenner, the podcaster. <laughs> yes. Uh, Bella Hadid, do you follow her work? Big fan. Uh, Haley Baldwin, Emily Ratajkowski. I know, I see that name in Mail Online all the time, but I don't know who it is. Anyway, they were all they were all paid to advertise it, and then there was a scandal over that. But basically, did you see the list of acts? Are you familiar with the acts? No. <laughs> You're no, not familiar I'm... with the work of Pusha T, Designer no. with Two Eyes, No. Skepta, Claptone. What about Lee Burridge? Are you? Well, Lee Burridge sounds like he plays in golf for Northampton Town, I think, compared, <laughs> compared with the others. Lee Burridge, is, that's the worst name. <laughs> it is. It's not a very good name. Anyway, they didn't turn up, all these bands. I mean, some of them hadn't even been booked. It was all a complete con. The, the best part of this con, actually, was that they told, um, the organisers told people who bought tickets, it will be cashless yeah, and cardless. Right. So basically, you have to give us lots of money now, <laughs> and we'll send you a bracelet with your money on it. And this was a sort of wireless, it would work by Wi-Fi. But when the people got to the island, there's no wireless on the island. So and there's no, there's no way to stay. No, they all stayed they in. They kind of got a tents, but there weren't enough tents to go around. United Nations tents, Tom. Refugee yeah. tents. And they gave them cheese sandwiches. Yeah. So the reason this is resonant, I think, is because it, it's 2017. And it seemed to, I mean, there was enormous quantities of schadenfreude. Because a lot of the people who paid up. Hundreds, five thousand people had to be sort of flown out, had to be like refugees. Um, and and I think this thing about parties or scandals throwing things into relief, it was seen as the sort of, you know, the 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 the, the self delusion of the Instagram generation. Wasn't right. It? So it's all about Instagram because the whole thing was designed to look good on Instagram. 
So that yeah. was right. It was Instagram influencers advertising it. And yeah. so the fact that it then turned out to be, you know, you were <laughs> camped out in a cesspool with a cheese sandwich <laughs> was everybody yeah. who hadn't gone. Well, anybody adored it. Basically, I mean, I, yeah. everybody over the age of 35 thought it was just absolutely the best thing that ever But I think happened. also all the, you know, pe- people who would have loved to go yeah. also enjoyed it because they hadn't and they dodged a bullet. Well, this is true. Do you not feel like that? When I mean, I'm not a natural festival goer. I don't think that'll surprise any of the audience to hear that. But whenever I, you know, when I was in my 20s and I used to see news footage of a deluge at Glastonbury and people, you know, trudging miserably through torrents of mud, I always used to think, I'm, I'm so happy yeah, they're sure, there but, and I'm here. But I think there's a difference because you expect that at Glastonbury and that's kind of factored in as part of the fun. That's true. And, that's and true. actually, you know, there's nothing, you know, Kate Moss in a pair of boots wandering around. That's, that's absolutely what is going to look good on Instagram. But the thing about this was that essentially, you, you know, you, you, you pay an enormous amount of money to look like, you know, a refugee, basically. Yeah. And it, the contra- it was the contrast of what was sold and then what was... What so was Ja Rule tweeted, it was not a scam. This is not my fault. Uh, and the official statement um, said, due to circumstances out of our control, the physical infrastructure was not in place on time <laughs> and we are unable to fulfill on our vision safely and enjoyably for our guests. Well, the main guy was sent to prison. Six years. Six years. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so the lesson for that, don't go to a festival unless it's a history festival. <laughs> Let's move on to uh, number eight. Number eight. A man who actually I can kind of see at the fire Festival, the young Peter the Great. The young Peter the Great. And this was suggested by uh, Simon Girdleston. Um, and I'm just going to read it, read it out because really there's, there's very little to add to it. So, Simon, uh, I nominate Peter the Great's stay at John Evelyn's house, Sales Court in Deptford, in 1698, in which Peter and his entourage of 70 soldiers, four dwarfs, a cook, a priest, and a monkey, consumed a colossal volume of spirits, burned all the furniture for firewood, including all 50 chairs, used all the 25 fine pictures for target practice, smashed all the doors and locks, left the carpets and floors covered in such a layer of grease that all were ruined and three floors had to be ripped up entirely, broke 300 window panes and smashed all the hedges in the garden that it had taken Evelyn 20 years to grow, as well as all the wheelbarrows by using them in drunken races. That's, well, that's pretty much it. So Peter the Great is on his grand tour um, of the West, He's come to London. He wants to look at the shipyards, but everything is, it, it's the winter of 1698. Well, he, so goes to, he goes to Amsterdam first, doesn't he? He does, exactly. And this is when William III is king of, he's king of England and he's whatever. Yeah. Stadtholder, is he? Prince? Uh, Prince of Orange. Prince of Orange oh. in the Netherlands. So the, he then comes to London. The Thames is frozen. Everything is frozen. People are skating and selling pies on the ice. And uh, basically because crowds keep coming to look at Peter the Great, he goes off. Well, he's incredibly to... tall, isn't he? And he's in disguise, so everyone's pretending it's not really him. But he's they so know it's tall. Him. And John Evelyn, the uh, diarist, very famous 17th century diarist, he's been been he's been doing looking after this garden for 45 years, laying out the hedges, which are his pride and joy. And he sublet it. He to Peter the Great. So no, no, no he hasn't sublet it. To oh no, to, he sublet um, it to somebody else, Admiral Benbow. Then, yes, who then, then sublet, sublet it to, to Peter the Great. So they never actually meet. No, and at one point, actually, Evelyn's steward. Writes to Evelyn, he says, um, the house is full of people and right nasty. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's up. Yeah. And, and this is exactly what happened. So he actually gets Christopher Wren and the royal gardener to go to the house to examine the state and to assess the uh, damage. And to assess the damage. Yeah. And it's exactly as you say the tiles have all been smashed, the windows have all been broken, there are 50 chairs in the house, and every one of them has been smashed. Um, the pictures have all been used for target practice. And it's the garden, I think, that's the big issue. Because this hedge has been utterly destroyed by people ramming wheelbarrows into it. And having races. 
And apparently what they used to do was they would put the czar in the wheelbarrow and race him into the hedges. <laughs> well, anyone who's seen The Great about uh, Catherine the Great and her marriage to Peter III will recognise this. The analogy here is sort of parents going away for the weekend and yeah. their children advertise a party on Facebook and um, a load of Russians turn up and uh, <laughs> wheelbarrow racing. Apologies to any Russian listeners. I'm sure there are plenty of Russian listeners who are, who are much better behaved than Peter the Great was. But anyway, £350 and ninepence was the damage. And that, you know, I, I haven't done the conversion, but that's a, a colossal amount of money Yeah, um, in 17th century terms. So those are, those are three in which nobody died. Yeah. But it's not really a disastrous party unless there's a kind of brutal killing. Well, hold on. No, no, no. no. That bloke died before. The Tutu man. Oh, of course he did. Yes, he did. Yes. Apologies. Yes, he did. Um, but he wasn't murdered. No, nobody's murdered anybody yet, which is disappointing. So now we come to our our first party that involved a murder. In fact, yeah. quite a few murders. Um, and this is the brilliantly named Blood Feast of Roskilde. And as Newgard has suggested this. Uh, who I'm imagining is perhaps a, a Danish listener. I should think so. Yeah. Um, so in 12th century Denmark, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, 9th of August, 1157. Uh, but the roots of this, Dominic, yeah. lie in uh, events that we covered in the, our 1066 episode. Um, so it involves Svein II, who was the king of Denmark, who sent the very last kind of what could be called a oh, Viking yes. expedition yeah. um, in, uh, I think, 1067. 1069, that's right, um, against England. And he'd, had, he'd been a, the great rival of Harald Hardrada, who we've you know, talked about quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but the, the other thing he does is he has enormous quantities of children. And they all fall out with each other. So it's like Edward other. III. Very much. You know, with a kind of delayed aftershock with the Wars of the Roses. This is the Danish equivalent. So there are, three, um, there are three rival claimants, aren't there, by, this, by the point of this blood feast. Is that right? Swain well, again, again the, 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 the echo of, uh, of Wars of the Roses in England. So in 1146, Eric III of Denmark abdicates and retires to a monastery. So he's, he, he's that kind of guy. Do you know what his sobriquet is? Eric the Wet. I think he's Eric the Memorable, isn't he? Is he? Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, the fact that he can't, clearly isn't that memorable. If... <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose memorable for a disastrous decision. Well, go on. Because he abdicates, and yeah. there are three alternative candidates. Yeah. And, and apparently in kind of list, Danish lists of kings, they all, they're all remembered as kings. They all overlap, exactly. They so all you've overlap. got Svein II. Knut no, Svein III. Svein III. Yes, of course, Svein III. Knut V, Voldemar I. Yeah. Um, and basically these three kings all fight each other for 11 years. Uh, and then they, um, they held council in Lolland. And they, it's a bit like King Lear. They decide to divide the kingdom into three. And they confirm the treaty by an oath. And then they, um, Svein invites the other two kings to a party in Roskilde. Absolute idiots. I've been to Roskilde, Tom. Yeah, it's a great. Fantastic ship museum. Yeah, yeah, ship museum. Yeah, ship museum. I heartily recommend it. A great cathedral. Very nice. Red brick kind of yeah. cathedral, isn't it? This is all a trap. Knut gets killed. Voldemar gets wounded in the thigh but runs away, manages to escape. Yeah. Um, and a few months later, he comes back with a big army. Uh, he defeats Svein, and he then becomes Voldemar the Great. Yeah, so there's a man called um, – it's, it's that classic thing. Svein has invited them to the party, and then Svein says, um, I just have to pop out for a second. Basically, <laughs> yes. if somebody you've been feuding with does that to you in medieval <laughs> Europe, you're absolutely mad to say, oh, yeah, well, I'll hang around here with your soldiers till yeah. – which is exactly what happens. He has a man called Detlef who just starts stabbing everybody. Um, but the, the folly is not to kill Valdemar as well because Valdemar escapes, doesn't he? He then fights Svein at a battle, the Battle of Grata Heide. 
Svein runs away. He's killed by a mob of angry peasants. And yeah. uh, Valdemar becomes king of Denmark. Exactly as you say. So basically, don't go to a party with a Danish king. I think. Um, and Valdemar thing. becomes a very, you know, he's a very successful king, and he smites the the Wends, who oh, yeah. um, who ne- who were pagans who never did anything without consulting a talking horse. Wow, that's a bit like Ptolemy um, uh, and the first the and his talking snakes. Yeah. yeah, talking animals are very much a feature of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So number six. Yeah. What have we got at six? Number so number six specifically, we're heading to Egypt, and we are heading to Cairo. In the spring of 1811, um, an Albanian kind of warlord called Muhammad Ali, not the boxer, um, is sick of the Mamluks. The Mamluks are the Turkic kind of warrior class that have been running Egypt. Who are in so, our Napoleon in Egypt. Exactly. So this is the sequel release in Napoleon in Egypt, mm-hmm. our earlier podcast. Um, Egypt has reverted to sort of Ottoman, nominal Ottoman rule. Muhammad Ali wants to wants to basically take it over for himself. He's sick of the Mamluks. And in that classic way that is so common, it's going to be so common in this podcast, the way to do it is to invite them all to a party. Now, there's a lot of them. There's hundreds of them. They are this sort of warrior elite from whose ranks for centuries the Egyptian, the masters of Egypt have basically been been chosen or, or emerged through a sort of bloody competition. And Tom, do you want to tell the story of what happens to the Mamluks? Well, it's his, his son's birthday party, which is the, the kind of exquisite twist. And he holds this in the, the citadel. Anyone who's been to Cairo, it's kind of brilliant. Everything that you'd expect the citadel of Cairo to be. Um, and it has it has a, a very steep, narrow passage that connects the kind of upper reaches of the fort to the lower gate. So they go there and they, um, uh, you know, they have they, they enjoy the party. They enjoy the party cake and the games and pass the par- pass the parcel. There's a lot of sweet kind of meats, stuff. which is exactly what I expect yeah, from an course. Egyptian party. Of course. Um, and then they all start filing down this um, this steep, narrow passage, um, and the Albanians slam the doors shut. The Mamluks are going down on their horses, um, and they're trapped in this passageway. And so they're, they're easy game, and they, they yeah. all get wiped out. Or do they? The story goes that one of them jumps over on the it, wall. On his horse. On his horse. And the horse dies, but he manages to get away, and he's the only survivor. Yeah, but but that's the that's the story. So that's not a good party, um, and I, I I think it's fair to say that um, dynastic change in Islamic history often features terrible parties. So the very first one, the Umayyads, are the, the first Islamic dynasty. Yeah, um, and they get eliminated um, by the the Abbasids, who go on to found Baghdad. And the the last Umayyad caliph, uh, Marwan, gets pursued to, again to Egypt, gets cornered, killed. Head gets sent to the the, the the Abbasids, and they feed his tongue to a cat. But they then they're anxious to round up the remaining Umayyads. Yeah, and so they 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 get them all, and they uh, stab them, and then they use them as um, a kind of uh, the foundation for a party. So they drape them with carpets and put all the kind of you know the couches and the, the treats, sweet, the sweetmeats yeah. and things, yeah. and that they all lie there. And they can hear the groans of the Umayyads as they slowly expire. So I suppose, I mean, I suppose that's a great oh party word. if you're an Abbasid, but it's a, it's a, it's terrible a terrible party, party if you're, if you're an yeah. Umayyad. See, Tom, I was actually, uh, when I, we were drafting this, I was a bit gutted that we chose that and not Chappaquiddick. But now I think that is a better party, a more disastrous party than uh, Chappaquiddick. Yes, I think, I think it probably is. Um, um, we have to come back to Chappaquiddick in the future. Ted Kennedy's uh, rather darkest hour well not just his darkest hour but mary joe capegna's darkest hour in a future podcast i think yes we will definitely right so we're halfway through the top 10 tension is mounting i think at this point we should um take a break and when we come back we'll be 
we'll be giving the top five. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. Now, before we continue with history's most disastrous parties, we want to let you know that we are going to let you, the listeners, choose the topic of an upcoming episode. What could possibly go wrong? So we've had billions of episode suggestions on Twitter and on email and on our Discord chat room for The Rest is History club members over the last few months. And we have narrowed them down to the four, the big four options and we want you, the listeners, to decide. So, Tom, would you like to unveil the shortlist? Number one, The Historical Jesus, suggested by Joe Evans Green. Number two, The Winter of Discontent and the Late 70s by Roy Nelly. Number three, Top Psychics. So that's Agrippa, uh, Eden, uh, Keith Joseph, uh, and that's suggested by Simon Girdleston. Uh, and uh, number four, The Special Relationship. So I guess that's uh, Britain and America, and that's suggested by Amy Mantravardi. So there you have it. The Historical Jesus, The Winter of Discontent, Top Sidekicks, and The Special Relationship. And if you want to get involved, it is a bit like choosing a party leader. It is one person, one vote. We don't have a trade union block vote in The Rest is History. But you do have to be a, a member of The Rest is History Club, whether you call yourself a Wang, a friend of the show, or an Athelstan doesn't matter, but you have to be part of the club to vote. So go to restishistorypod.com. You sign up to the Discord, and then you click on the polls channel to cast your vote. The poll is now live, and it will be until Wednesday evening. And we will announce the winning topic on next week's episode, and we will then think about when we're going to record it. So welcome back to The Rest is History. We're all about parties uh, this this week. Um, we've done the uh, some of the top 10 most disastrous parties in history we are approaching our top five tom a great character awaits us now one of my favorite roman emperors elagabalus um, yes sun worshipping uh by all accounts a dreadful man though some, perhaps <laughs> much maligned by the I, i'm basing this on the augustan history yeah. which I, I i suspect you will tell me is pure propaganda so what century are we in first we are we're, we're in the early third century um so the the age of the antonine peace is 
uh, coming to an end. In fact, Elagabalus is is the last of the Antonii in that that particular family. He reigns two one eight two two two, and as you say, the the main source for his life is the Augustan history, and it's the account that it gives is very very lurid. Yeah, um, that's so, putting it mildly. So it, yes, uh, so um, Elagabalus is according to this um, biography of him in the, the Augustan history, very much a, a party animal. Um, so he, he likes to dress up as Venus. Uh, he's reputedly the, the first emperor to wear nothing but silk. That's right, yeah. Um, he, he lolls around on cushions that are filled with um, rabbit fur. He was made, made entirely of silver. Um, he feeds <laughs> his dogs on foie gras. Uh, he only swims in perfumed swimming pools. He has um, he has a, a chariot drawn by um, kind of female ponies, uh, so women who you know bitted and bridled and human ponies. But he's he's a, a japester. Well, some of these details are absolutely preposterous. So <laughs> some of his and this reading from the Augustan history, some of his humbler friends he would seat on air pillows instead of on cushions, and he would let out the air while they were dining, so that often the diners <laughs> were suddenly found under the table. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's only a step up from a whoopee cushion. But if you but if you get that you get off lightly. Because, yeah. Uh, well, so he uh, and another another gag of his was to invite people to massive banquets, but the food that they were given was made entirely out of wax or wood or right. pottery or whatever. Where he'd have real food and he'd be guzzling away. They just have to content them. You know, they just have to stare at it and then pretend that they'd eaten. But the worst was um, he, if he invited you to stay overnight. Oh yeah, and he'd get you hammered. He'd get you hammered, yeah. and then and then he'd say, "I've procured you the most skillful and beautiful courtesans in the world," uh, and and leave the lights off, and they'd wake up and discover that there were withered old crones, yeah, old hags <laughs> from Ethiopia. Yes, <laughs> in the Augustan. But I yeah. thought you were going to say what he does is, um, it says here, when his friends became drunk, he would shut them up, and suddenly during the night he would let in his lions and leopards yes. and bears. So, so that's that it- the ultimate. <laughs> So that all of them harmless, because they'd obviously had their teeth taken out or something. So that his friends on awakening at dawn, or worse, during the night, would find leopards and leopards and bears in the room, and some even died basically of a heart attack when they uh, woke yeah. up to find they were sleeping next to a leopard. Yeah. So, so he's. I mean, he's a, he's a tremendous laugh. One more though, Tom. One more. One more. This is the, the most banal. Uh, I think he would propose to his guests by way of a feat they should invent new sources for giving flavour to the food. And he would offer a large prize for the man who invented the best sauce. On the other hand, if the sauce did not please him, the inventor was ordered to continue eating it until he invented a better one. <laughs> so imagine so turning up with a sauce. You've got to keep eating it until you yeah. come up with a better one. Well, it's kind of MasterChef with... <laughs> yeah, with leopards. <laughs> with leopards. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that would be brilliant. You know who would um, have enjoyed his parties, Tom? Um, Dietrich Graf von Hülsen Hazel. Yes, he would. <laughs> And Ted, Ted Kennedy, actually, he'd have loved it as well. Well, actually, we, so um, a comment on this from Joseph Evans Green: This episode will surely be a wash with absolute lads. I mean, yeah. I think basically all these all these guys. I mean, imagine. Anyway, the famous um, party that Elagabalus supposedly hosted um, is illustrated by the famous painting by Lawrence Alma Tadema, the kind of Dutch oh, yes. yeah. uh, painter of classical scenes, um, and it shows. Elagabalus drowning his guests beneath, suffocating his guests beneath rose petals. And the story goes that rose petals start to drop down on the guests when they're at their table. And everyone's thinking, oh, this is delightful, how charming. And they continue to fall and they continue to fall and they continue to fall until they everyone is dead. 
suffocated by it. And when um, when Alma Tadema painted this uh, very famous painting, if you haven't seen it, do, do Google it. Um, it was in the dead of winter. And so we had to send for rose petals from the French Riviera, which is kind of great. That's very elegabalan behaviour in itself. Well, it is. And uh, Elagabalus was the great hero of the kind of, you know, the, the decadence and romantics. Uh, so kind of wild and people yeah. like that. Aubrey Beardsley-ish uh, kind of people. Aubrey Beardsley, yeah. Uh, Antoine Otto called him the crowned anarchist. What happened to him, Tom? Nothing good. Uh, he really? got murdered. Yeah, yeah, he got murdered. Of he did. Because he, he can't make people sit on air cushions and no. next to leopards <laughs> no. for that long. One, w- they... one party too far. Yeah. So he's at number five, and I think he he's not higher because it probably didn't happen. Yes, yeah, so that's the issue with so, this, isn't it? That none of it really happened. So yeah, yeah, so that's a shame. I think I think you know parties actually have to have happened. But our next party definitely did happen because we've mentioned it on the show before. Number four, that's right, isn't it, Tom? It is. Yeah. Um, so this is suggested by James Lavender, and we then have an honourable mention. Well, so it's the Black Dinner. It's a Scot- It's the first Scottish party of the uh, of the top ten. And we also, because this is really a sort of um, a devolved administrations party <laughs> section, because mm. we're also going to be touching on the Abergavenny massacre recommended by Andrew Patterson. So, Tom, tell us about the Black Dinner. So the Black Dinner, um, lots of fans of Game of Thrones will have heard of this because it provided the, um, the model for the Red Wedding. And it's called the Black Dinner both because uh, it, it was a terrible thing, but also because um, it, it involves the Douglases who are probably the most powerful of the, the lowland families in the late Middle Ages. Um, they had come to prominence during the Scottish Wars of Independence. Um, and you have uh, Sir James Douglas, uh, who was known to the Scots as the good Douglas yeah. and to the English as Black Douglas, because he was he was such a kind of proficient fighter against them. Um, and... He he's he is the guy who gets charged by Robert Bruce to take his heart to the Holy Land, uh, and he takes a wrong turning and ends up in Spain, <laughs> where 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 he dies fighting the Moors. Oh, that's very uh, and, unfortunate. And um, Bruce's heart is brought back and and buried. I think in is it Melrose? I think it's buried. you might be Melrose. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Earl of Douglas is known as Black Douglas. The Earl of Angus, who's another kind of family and this again going back to Macbeth the complexities of Scottish families uh, are known as the Red Douglases um, and the Black the, the black Dinner uh, takes place in 1440 so that's several generations after um, the original Douglas um, and it, it involves more, it's not an uncle murdering his nephew but it's a great uncle yeah murdering the 16 uh, year old William Douglas isn't it yeah, who is the sixth? Yeah, the sixth Earl of Douglas um, and his younger brother. So it's quite Richard the Third. But this is um, also a children's party, which is worse mm. because they're invited to dinner with James the Second of Scotland, who's, who's ten, ten years old. Ten years yeah. old, yeah. Um, and while they're eating, they're having a lovely dinner. James the Second is having a wonderful time, and while they're eating, the uh, servants bring in a black bull's head, <laughs> which is meant it's, to be. They couldn't get a magician. Yeah, <laughs> it's basically. <laughs> When they bring in this black bull's head, it's a symbol of death. This is the sort of this is the equivalent of the black spot from Treasure Island, isn't it? Um, and at that point, these two. So William Douglas is sixteen. He's turned up with his younger brother. At this point, when the black bull's head makes its appearance, they're dragged out, aren't they? And, and basically beheaded. Is that right, yeah. Tom? Yeah. After a, after a kind of fake trial, um, and, and they're beheaded so that they're one of the people who's organised it is also a Douglas, so that he can basically get the wealth and titles and the earldom. Well, that's the great uncle, right? So it's, James, yeah. It's very bad, very bad form. 
Walter, so, uh, Walter Scott writes a poem about this, Tom. Do you, know, do you want to know how it goes? Yeah, I'd love to. Love a bit of poetry. Edinburgh Castle, town and tower, God grant thou sink for sin, and that e'en for the black dinner, old Douglas gat therein. Who knows what that means? I don't know what that means, but anyways, that was a very... Pa- the a Scotsman wonderful. would give that more than one star, I think. A, a wonderful flavour of what the world missed when you were denied the chance to play Macbeth. <laughs> or, or indeed Walter Scott. Well, now, talking of great dramatic portrayals, so the Abergavenny Massacre, are you familiar with this? No, but I saw it being suggested by Andrew Patterson. So, so the Abergavenny Massacre is not dissimilar from this or from the Ross Gilder carry-on. Uh, we're on the Welsh marches. Um, William de Breos, uh, who's a sort of marcher lord, he invites a man called Sitzelt and all the Powys chieftains to his to a feast at Christmas. Um, they're going to you know, bury all the hatchets and be great pals and have a wonderful time. It's the classic Game of Thrones style story. They pitch up Christmas feast, stack the weapons in a corner. Ale is flowing. Um, suddenly the doors are barred. William de Brose's men come, rush in and massacre everybody. William de Brose earns the the name, the Ogre of Agab- Abergavenny. And Abergavenny Castle has this taint of of treachery and, and murder ever since. So this is... And are the people he's murdering Welsh? They're Welsh. They are Welsh. So this is a, a kind of... Well, he's not English, is he? Because he's, an, he's No, he's Norman, a Norman kind of martial arts. But here's the weird thing. So this fellow, whoever it was, suggested Abergavenny Massacre. Who was it who suggested it? Uh, Andrew, Andrew Patterson. Patterson. I thought I'll read up on this. I saw there was a big thing on the Brecon Beacons National Park official website about it, because obviously it's taking place there. I had a look, and there is... There's an essay on the Brecon Beacons National Park website written apparently by William de Breos <laughs> defending himself in the style of Donald Trump. <laughs> Can you believe that? It's so weird. People who don't understand, they only believe liars and haters. People who fail to make up their own minds as to the truth, they call me the ogre of Abergavenny. Wrong. I gathered a team, truly great and talented men, patriots, to plan very smoothly, very effectively, very efficiently how we could defeat these terrorists once and for all and make the marches safe for civilization and make the crown great again. My many enemies, losers and jealous people (laughs) have misrepresented this story. The news of the Christmas victory did not get the praise it deserved. We stayed strong. We won a great victory, a truly great victory. And it goes on like that for, you know, for hours, basically, explaining why the massacre at Abergavenny, he's been hard done by by losers and liars, the fake news media and all this stuff. It's such a weird thing to be on the official National Park website. But there it is. Well, I like that. So you didn't yeah. expect no, I didn't. that story to take that turn, but it did. So disastrous parties can have, you know. Hilarious consequences. Hilarious consequences. <laughs> yeah. Well, that well, brings us very neatly. To, uh, <laughs> to number three, which I think is a truly terrible party. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's an awful party. And it's been seared on my mind ever since I read uh, Barbara Tuckman's The Distant Mirror years and years ago. One of my favourite books when I was about 12. Um, yes. And, and this is um, The Bal des Ardons, Charles VI, the dance of the, dance of the kind of burning people. Yeah. Dance of the people set on fire. And this is the story of Charles VI, who in, in a way is the kind of the Henry VI of, of France. So this is um, this is kind of the interval in the Hundred Years' War. So the English have come; they fought Cressy, they fought Poitiers. They've basically been kind of forced back out um, under that the great French king Charles V. Charles V has died in thirteen eighty, and he's succeeded by his son Charles, originally named Charles, uh, who becomes Charles VI, aged twelve. Yeah, um, poor fellow, was so, as mad as a hatter, Tom. Well, 
he's not at this point. So, so in his kind of teenage years, he's not. He comes of age. He starts ruling. We have um, various dukes among them. Um, our old friend, the Duke of Burgundy, well, Philip the Bold. Yeah, he, so people who listen to our Bur- Burgundy podcast may remember Charles the Sixth um, and what what he later believes about himself. All these, so, so there are all these kind of various predatory dukes and so on hanging hanging around. And in 1392, Charles the Sixth becomes obsessed with the idea that one of these kind of powerful magnates is out to get him, and he's retreated to, to Brittany. And so Charles orders an invasion force to go out from Paris to invade Brittany. And he's riding along um, and he is apart from the rest of the group because it's very hot. It's very dusty. Uh, he doesn't want to get the dust that's been kicked up by all his um, partner's horses in his nose. Um, and he's riding along and suddenly a barefoot madman comes running out of the woods and reaches up and tries to hold his bridle. And he shouts out, ride no further, noble king, turn back, you are betrayed. And he follows the king shouting this for about half an hour. And it's obviously very, very uncomfortable, very unsettling for the king, who's starting to feel a bit dizzy in the heat. And they stop. And then um, one of his pages drops a lance and it clangs against the helmet. And suddenly the king goes completely mad and he draws his sword and he's convinced that he's being attacked by um, by people. He starts attacking his own uh, his own um, uh, party. He attacks his brother, yeah. the Duke of Orléans, Louis, the Duke of Orléans. Uh, and he has to be kind of overpowered and Philip, Duke of Burgundy, seizes control of the situation. They head back to Paris and the king is nursed back to a precarious kind of health uh, by winter. And over the winter season, they just, everyone decides that the way to, to get the king you know, happy, to get him functioning, is to provide a whole series of parties. It's like tomfoolery, just endless tomfoolery, isn't Japes, it? Japes, yeah. mad capery. Um, and on the 28th of January, his wife, Isabel, Isabeau, the queen, yeah. Um, she is celebrating the, wet, the the third wedding of one of her favourite ladies in waiting. And it's the custom when you celebrate someone who, the, the wedding of someone who's already been married that you, you kind of have uh, particularly riotous behaviour. Yeah, you do, it, you do it in a less, dare I say, a less sacral way, Tom. A less sacral way, yes. So decorum is thrown to the winds. It's, it's like Downing Street. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there is a, there's a very unpleasant guy called Huguet de Gisi, who is very, very unpleasant. And his particular party trick is if a servant offends him, he kind of forces the uh, the servant to, to, to fall down on the floor and he puts his spurred boot on the back of the servant and he shouts out, bark, dog, bark. Oh, it's a bit cool. like succession. Yeah. The boar on the floor. If very is succession. That, that episode. Um, and Ugo decides that it would be tremendous fun and obviously brilliant when the king is a little bit, a little bit precarious and fragile if they all dress up as as trees as kind of wild men of the trees so they coat themselves in pitch and they add various branches bits of wood bits of twig and sort of hair and fur and stuff yes. isn't it really kind of and they weird. all wear masks so that nobody can see who they are and because obviously they understand that this is a fire hazard i mean that's part of the thrill of it, it you know that you're dicing with death very strict orders are given that no one is to have a torch that's right. So there are six of them. They all go rushing in to where the queen and her lady-in-waiting are celebrating the nuptials, and they start dancing. And, and uh, shouting uh, obscenities. Shouting like, obscenities. Nobody knows who they are. Yeah. But, you know, but this is what they, people have been expecting. And then disastrously, uh, Louis, his, the king's brother, yeah. the Duke of Orléans, comes in, and he hasn't heard the he's orders. A, he's, a bit, he's a bit tipsy, and he's carrying a torch. Carries a torch. 
and a, a spark catches the pitch on the bodies of one of the revelers and it just goes whoosh and yeah. the queen screams because she knows that her husband is one of these six dancing men but his aunt who is only 15 is wearing a massive dress colossal dress de berry and she throws her skirt over him to basically put out his you know to to protect him from the flames and to put out any any sparks that have attached themselves to him but then the other the other five all they basically no, well, go up like candles, don't no, they? No, one of them. One of them jumps into a wine cooler. He does, of course. Yes. So he he's does. he's so two of them survive. The Sieur de Nantouillet. He jumps into a big vat of sort of Duke of Clarence style. Jumps yes. into a vat of wine, but the others. So he's all right. Um, yeah, the others. The others. So one dies on the spot. Yeah. Two two linger kind of for, for two days and and then die of their burns. And then Huguet de Guise, he dies after three days and he gets put in his coffin and the cortege go through Paris. And as it goes through the streets of Paris, everyone shouts out, bark, dog, bark. Oh, my word. Well, And, of course, this drives the king completely around the twist. I was about to say, this isn't good for Charles's mental health. No, it's not good for his mental health. Sometimes he wakes up in the middle of the night. Oh, Tom, if only he'd listen to your ads. I know. Um. Wondering, will I ever stop being mad? Uh, Yeah. And he won't because he he thinks he's made of glass and all that kind of stuff. That's a very sad Uh, story, poor Charles. uh, But it's good for Henry V. Yeah, so so it all ends happily in the end. (laughs) <laughs> yes right so that's i think i think that's i mean in a way the most upsetting perhaps that's quite tragic well this next yeah. party is very tragic so number two um claire jay suggested this i'm glad she did because i suggest it was one of the first parties i thought of when we talked about disastrous parties so sort of friends of the show or sort of tragic friends of the show i should say uh nicholas and alexandra the last Tsar and um Tsarina of russia they are getting crowned in May 1896 um, at the Uspensky Cathedral in the Kremlin. And they there are all kinds of massive celebrations and festivities arranged um, to celebrate the latest kind of Romanov Tsar. And uh, there's going to be a huge party, sort of festival banquet at Kadinka Field, based on the outskirts of Moscow. So the way that's going to work is they put up um, a sort of mock theatres, kind of wooden theatres. They put up um, all kinds of stands. They've built 20 bars. Now, near where this sort of, where it's going to happen, there's this field with kind of all gullies and ravines, and it's a bit it's kind of raggedy field. Um, but that's fine. Everyone's going to turn up and have a tremendous time. Now, they are told um, on the by the evening of the 29th of May, so it's going to be the next day. On the 29th of May, the rumour goes around Moscow that there are going to be all kinds of gifts given to the people when this party takes place. So basically the gifts you get, now these may not sound like much to you, Tom, but people of Moscow in 1896, mm-hmm. uh, a bread roll, a piece of sausage, uh, some pretzels, some gingerbread, and a commemorative cup. Well, it sounds better than the fire festival. Yeah, it's a lot better than the fire festival. So people are very excited about this, and the rumour goes around that in the cup there will be a gold coin, which people are very, very excited by. So by dawn on the mo- on the morning of the party, there are several, there are thousands of people already streaming onto this field. And basically, the it's the classic thing. The authorities haven't anticipated the demand. Um, they've provided about two thousand policemen, but that's nowhere near enough to control the crowds. And then a rumor goes around, sort of as the as the excitement mounts, the morning wears on. A rumor goes around um, that they are going to run out of pretzels and beer. And the crowd all get very excited and they stampede towards the, the stalls 
And uh, as I said, the field is kind of ragged and pitted and there's ditches and stuff. People start to fall into a ditch, more people pile on top of them. And basically, um, at least 1,200 people are crushed to death at this at this party. And there are thousands upon thousands more, perhaps as many as 20,000 who are badly injured. So it's an absolutely appalling, ghastly scene. The extraordinary thing is the festival continues. So the Tsar and Alexandra, they turn up at about two o'clock, by which time the dead have been taken away. Um, and then that evening, they go on to a, a ball at the, at the French, French ambassador, isn't it? The French embassy, exactly. Now, Nicholas writes about this in his diary, and he says, you know, it's, um, it's a terrible mishap and awful, awful and all this. But because he's a very, he and Alexandra are very controlled, slightly neurotic, anxious, serious people, they don't do a kind of Princess Diana and go and emote and no they go to church they exactly or, or, and everybody says or whatever it is and yeah. everybody says you know they, they they don't care they don't so right from the beginning lots of people say um well first of all it well, throws, he gets called bloody nicholas bloody nicholas exactly so this is he has this nickname right from the beginning that it's ill-fated that this is a terrible omen for his reign but of course the reason it, one of the reasons it's a terrible omen is that in a very unequal divided febrile society it's the worst possible start and it, you you know no scriptwriter could imagine a yeah. scene better calculated to prove that you have an uncaring aloof elite and a downtrodden oppressed majority and as you've said all along the key to a, a really disastrous party is that it holds a mirror up to yeah. fractures and, exactly uh, exactly pathologies within a society which obviously this does very yeah. powerfully right so that i think that's indisputably a terrible party we now come to our choice of number one yeah um and there's a, a bit of a cheat this because we have actually already discussed it. Well, it's so, it's two so it parts has, in one list. This though, so Tom. it has. It, so that's why we've chosen it because this is a disastrous party that echoes down the centuries it's and too, yeah. gives birth to to a second disastrous party. So we have chosen as our most disastrous party in history: Alexander burning down Persepolis, Alexander well, the Great. Well, it's basically Persepolis as a party venue. I think this this isn't yeah. it. Yeah. So, so tell us about Alexander, Tom. Well, we've got Simon James George. Not many parties get that out of hand. Yeah. Uh, so, Alex, Alexander. So Joseph Evans Green had said that this episode will be a wash with absolute lads. Alexander is obviously the ultimate lad, uh, and he he features in three disastrous parties really. So there's the the party that um, is held to celebrate his father Philip. Uh, he, he gets remarried, uh, gets drunk, um, stumbles. Um, and uh, and Alexander, who, who's very miffed that his father has remarried, kind of dismissively, you know, this is when Philip is planning to invade Persia, says, men of Macedon, what a fine hero the states of Greece have to lead their armies from Europe to Asia. He's not able to pass from one table to another without falling. Philip tries to kill him. Alexander runs away. It's all terrible. But also, Tom. It's a bad wedding party. But also, uh, Philip, uh, they had a party, didn't they, for... Um... For Philip's daughter was Alexander's sister who was getting married, and that's where Philip was assassinated. Philip yeah, has so a, that's another one. Philip so has a, a terrible party. record with parties. Yeah, so that's a bad. So okay, so there's yeah, there's four. So that's a bad one. Then there's the murder of Black Clytus, uh, friend of Philip, yeah. uh, kind of mentor to Alexander, all, the brother of Alexander's old nanny. Yeah, so they have a massive bust up, uh, and Alexander ends up skewering him with a spear. That's in Samarkand, isn't it? This one is three thirty. Alexander has. Um, He's defeated the Persians in three great battles. The third one at Gaugamela, um, Darius III has fled. So um, 
Mesopotamia and Persia are now Alexander's. So he goes to Babylon uh, and then he rides up to Persepolis, which is the, the it's it's the city that most symbolizes the power of the Persian dynasty, the Achaemenids, whom Alexander has toppled. And although generally Alexander wants to lay claim to the inheritance of the Persian Empire, on this occasion, clearly he has decided that Persepolis should go, that he will be making a statement that the Achaemenid era is over and that he is the new king of Persia. And and the story goes that he is celebrating capture of Persepolis, riotously drunk, and there is a, a courtesan there, Hetera, called Teis, who is the mistress of Ptolemy, yeah. our friend with the talking snakes, who subsequently becomes king of Egypt. And she is Athenian. And one of the Persian kings, Xerxes, had burnt the Acropolis during the invasion of Greece in 480 BC. And she says, let's, let's, get, let's have vengeance. Let's burn Persepolis. And so the story goes that Alexander, very drunk by this point, and all the gang, Teus kind of cheering them on, yes. incinerate the palace. They throw all these torches, don't they, into the Xerxes, the hall with the thousand columns or whatever it's called. The fantastic, you know, the uh, buildings that are far greater than anything in Greece. The finest, most splendid statements of power in the sort of Near Eastern world. Well, often sculpted by Greeks. Um, but they're yeah. absolutely, you know, they're a lot of made, made of wood, so it all burns down. Um, these rafters come crashing down. It's a terrible scene. But as you say, it resounds down the centuries because it becomes that party becomes the sort of template, doesn't it? For it, it's the sort of it's it, it's the ultimate symbol of hubris and sort of drunkenness and all this kind of stuff. And yeah. actually, that that next Persepolis party has also become a symbol of hubris, though some historians think slightly unfairly. So let's go more than two thousand years forward in time we're in 19 kudos to, to nathan hogg for suggesting this yeah very good suggestion um we're in 1971 in october 1971 and it is the 2500th anniversary um or is it of persia no, of the sort of no persia, cyrus of cyrus yeah. the great exactly and the the shah of iran Mohammad reza pahlavi um who we talked about in our oil crisis uh, oil weapon episode he is very keen to assert Iranian um, power, modernity, sort of it, its its renewed status in the world to assert his regime and all this stuff. So he organizes this colossal party. Um, uh, some, you know, it, it's as with so much of this, like with Elagabas' party, how much of this is true is actually difficult to say, even though it's very recent, because the Guinness Book of Records crowned this the greatest banquet in human history but whether that's really the, the truth well, is the, the food is flown in from um from maxims, maxims in, in, in paris, paris exactly yeah and there's all kinds of there's 250 mercedes limousines yes, they all pick them up. um there's dinnerware from the moge there are special plates commissioned from spode of england Ten thousand plates decorated in turquoise and gold all this sort of stuff is and lots of lots of um so uh the queen doesn't go um duke of edinburgh goes nixon doesn't go Spiro Agnew goes. Spiro Agnew goes. Princess Anne goes. Uh, Haile Selassie goes. Yeah, Haile Selassie, Tito, Imelda Marcos, Ceausescu, Mobutu. A lot of uh, people who've turned up in the show before. Um, they all go. So it's a, it's an absolutely you know tremendous occasion if you like dictators. and All <laughs> um, princesses. And, uh, yeah, they have this huge blowout. And a Son and, there's a Son and Lumiere show. There's all this kind of stuff. But what's so interesting is, so the Shah's regime falls. Um, sort of seven, eight years later in the Iranian revolution. And the party 
becomes this metaphor for the hubris of the Shah's regime. It has done ever since. And the, the estimates of its cost have kind of ballooned and ballooned. Yeah. But it turns out, so I read a there's, a, there's an academic study of this by a chap called Robert Steele. And he says a lot of this stuff is just made up. So there's a claim, for example, they flew in 50,000 songbirds from Europe. And he says, this is just utterly invented. They didn't need to fly in songbirds. There are lots of songbirds in Iran. Um, what happened is that when the revolution took place, in order to basically besmirch the Shahs, I mean, the, the party was an extravagant blowout, no question, but that people made ever more inflated claims about it in order to kind of paint the Shah as this sort of demented madman. And um, but also it's to, it's to um, it, it, it's to attack the very institution of monarchy itself, exactly. Which is why the fact it's at Persepolis is so potent. Yeah. yeah. And actually, if you go to Persepolis. Um, the, the frameworks of the tents that they put up, which I think were modelled on the field of the, the cloth field of gold, of yeah, um, you can still see them. So you you walk up a path towards the ruins and the, the kind of the the skeletons, the the rusting skeletons of these tents are still there. I guess as a you know as a reminder, type, yeah, exactly as a reminder. But I mean all that stuff about the songbirds and everything. I mean it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it it does suggest that say the Alagabalus episode. I mean you can kind of see how these stories develop and indeed even the, the the story that alexander torches it as part of a drunken party um but i agree i it's really the ultimate disastrous party i think because, because it resonates so so powerfully so tom give me your choice so if there's one party if you had to go to one which would you go to and which is one would you least likely like to go to i think for the sheer improbability of it Seeing the ballet dance in the Black Forest. <laughs> That's what I choose to. I mean, I, I enjoyed that story so much that I would love to have been at that party. <laughs> um, Which would you least like to go to? Well, I think the rose petals, because then you're going to die. No, no, no. I'd, I'd definitely, I'd, I'd have the one I'd least like to go to. Surely you must get, be able to get. I'd hate to go to the fire festival. Yeah. With a load of would be influencers. <laughs> I but think, you wouldn't. But the, but the influences didn't go. That's. I point. think if I went to that fest, if I'd gone to the fire fest, I mean, it's inconceivable. I can't imagine a scenario in which I would go to the fire festival. But if I had gone, I think I would. I would much rather have been like the black dinner, or or a mamluk. Or is your dislike of going to festivals so great that you'd rather be smothered to death beneath rose petals? Um, if it was with the people at the fire festival, I think yes. <laughs> Well, if there are any influencers who are running massive festivals out there who'd like to invite Dominic. I mean, it'd be a great endorsement for your festival, actually, if you converted yeah. me. So yeah, it would. I'm, I'm very much up for if like any of these Bella Hadid people want to contact me and invite me to their festival. And maybe, maybe you could take your tutu. Yeah, I'll go as Count Von whatever. <laughs> How about that? And we may have a new candidate for the most disastrous party of all time. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, thanks ever so much for listening. Um, what have we got coming up, Dominic? We have got oh, we've got um, the last um, the last emperor of Mexico, haven't we? That's a very that's a very exciting story. Very actually, quite story. a few disastrous parties in that, I think. So, thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the rest is history. For bonus episodes, early access, ad free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.